my name is Jared Anderson. This is a podcast about consciousness and transformation, where we explore the nature of consciousness and how we as humans transform. I speak with teachers, coaches, mystics, authors, and others in the transformational space. These conversations are designed to support your own growth and evolution. Welcome. Hello, everybody. My name is Jared Anderson. I'm a human. I'm with this other human. His name's Toku McCree. He's a friend of mine, and I like him a lot. How do you know that I'm a human being? You, you haven't asked me that question yet. I could be from another planet. Toku, are you, in fact, human? <clears throat> far as I'm aware. Yes, Jared. In this lifetime, I'm a human being. He is a good dude. He's, uh, I'm excited to talk to him. We're going to talk about a lot of things, coaching, leadership. We're going to talk about Zen, meditation, lots of kind of things like that. I'm going to read his bio really quick because it's a good bio. Toka McCree is an author, speaker, and coach focused on bringing Zen teachings to the world of business, leadership, and coaching. He trained for over two years as a Zen monk and whose clients work with some of the world's top organizations, including Facebook, Google, the New York Times, United Talent Agency, Nokia, and more. Your clients are Facebook, so we've already talked about Get on this. Let's go, Toku. Toku, say hello. I don't work directly with Facebook. I have some clients who work with Facebook. I see. Yeah. Say hi, Toku. Hi. Hi, Toku. I was asking Toku right before, and I wanted to finish up the question. I stopped him because I wanted to know. Toku's his spiritual name. So, Toku, say again uh, what your spiritual name is and what it means to you. Sure. So, Toku is short for Gentoku, G-E-N-T-O-K-U. And Gentoku stands for Manifesting Virtue or Present Sincerity. And I got that name in 2008, 2008, 2009, somewhere in there. Tell me, I'm curious, have you noticed any changes since taking on that name? I mean, I, I took the name because of the changes I already been through. Mm-hmm. But I didn't notice any changes. It's hard because I took the name on the same time I was at the monastery. So there was like a lot of changes. Yeah. It was sort of, an again, I think it was sort of an acknowledgement of the changes I already been through in the monastery and it felt like uh i just no longer felt like sam anymore i felt mm. like toku my parents still call me sam um, which i have conflicted feelings about sometimes but mostly i'm okay with it and yeah uh, but no one else does and every girlfriend i brought back home if they ever call me sam i'm like don't don't do that call me toku I'm very clear i don't want people to call me sam for those of you who don't know, like this whole thing about taking on spiritual names, there's like a reasoning for taking on spiritual names. Hmm. There's a couple different ideas, either like a channeler or a person who really is intuitive about what your energy or essence waiting to come through in a spiritual sense will fe- like feel into the future and give you the name that they see coming through you. Some believe that like it starts to awaken and manifest and you start to live into sort of more of your essence that uh, your, your name starts to really move that energy of the name out into the world. But in any case, it's uh, more of your sort of dharmic lineage. And dharma, for those, again, who don't know, is, is sort of like your life's path or, or gospel for, for more Western types of approaches. Anything to add about that, Toku? No, I mean, I, you know, it's always a challenge for me because people are like, well, is that your real name? I'm like, yes, it is my real name. They're like, well, no, what, what's your real name? I'm like, that's my real name. My real name is Gentoku. As if what they're asking is, is that my birth name? And it's not, right? Or you asked, is that my original name? Which I don't like that. I'm like, well, what was the original, you know? So I had a birth name that I was given at birth, sort of like people are assigned gender yeah. at birth. 
So if you're talking to transgender people, you might say someone's AFAB or AMAP, assigned female at birth, assigned male at birth. So I was assigned Samuel at birth, which I love and appreciate that name and the intention. It's a beautiful spiritual name means of God or gift from God. So it's a beautiful spiritual name. But people have this way of being like, well, that's not your real name. I'm like, well, my real name is whatever name I say is my real name. Right. And so it's just interesting to see how people react to that. And I get a little bit of a taste of what I imagine people who have other people who have unusual names, especially names that are, have an interesting ethnic origin, what, what they must experience. So it's, it's just interesting. And then people struggle to pronounce my name or will make fun of it because they think it's funny. And uh, it's actually not that difficult to pronounce. Okay. And I don't think there's anything really funny about it. It's just my name. Yeah. Um, but somehow if you have an unusual name that sort of, it feels like it gives people permission to make fun of you or to not take you as seriously, which is, which is weird. Do you, I get the sense that it's actually them that are feeling uncomfortable. They're like, "Ooh, oh, yeah. not John. Who's this?" Yeah, your name is not Greg or Michael, so I have to be weird about it. As I was going through Kundalini yoga training last year, they encouraged us to reach out, and, and there's this getting your spiritual name process, and I just didn't feel like I was like, "No, that's not." My spiritual name will land on my shoulder as a dove, and then my Zen, like isn't your spiritual name uh, Neo? Yeah, that's it. That's the one. Oh, we're here to talk about coaching, and I love how this conversation's already started because we're talking about names and we're talking about like meanings, and and it's interesting because you were talking about like. Sam is a beautiful name that has like a spiritual name and you created like a new spiritual identity and a new path, which is really speaking to paradigms of existence. Like what is the thing that I'm living into? What's the energy that I'm living into? Hmm. And, you know, I think as a jumping off point to just talk about coaching, what I notice is that people come to me and they're like, Hey, I want to deal with this problem. Right. And one of the first things about dealing with problems and jumping into it is really identifying, helping them to identify that they're living through a paradigm and that that paradigm elicits virtues and problems. There's like these benefits that have with every paradigm we have, but it also starts to, again, elicit these problems, right? And they're sort of inherent within them. And a lot of coaching work, it's not exclusively this, but a lot of coaching work is identifying the paradigm that you're living in and then identifying the limitations of it and then doing the work to potentially change paradigms if you truly want. I, mean, I guess the only thing I would add is that paradigms also suggest certain solutions. Right. That's a good point. And so often what we'll do is we'll look for a solution inside the paradigm we're in and that solution is pretty predictable. So I was working with a client the other day I was talking about the context or relationship to time as not enough. So I said, it's a pretty common context or I use context yeah. as a paradigm. Yeah, yeah. It's a really common context. A lot of people live into Well, there's not enough time, not enough hours in the day. I've got, I've got too much to do is sort of a similar kind of like way of looking at that. And so I was talking about how like inside the context of there's not enough time, you could have an hour or 10 hours. It's still going to feel like not enough because it's inside that context. And inside the context of not enough time, the solution is always find more time right? Or be more efficient, which is sort of this weird hack of finding time. But what it doesn't acknowledge is that there's something problematic about the way that you're relating to time, which is that there's not enough of it. And that problem in it, or that, that context in and of itself kind of keeps you trapped. And so long as you keep relating to time as being not enough or a limitation or tight, 
everything you see and everything you look at is going to continue to feel like not enough time, which is why if you know someone who feels like there's not enough time, you give them a week of vacation. There's now not, not enough vacation time. You could cut their work hours in half. They'll find a way to fill that. Like they're, they're just relating to time from that place. And so it's, I think it's hard for a lot of people to separate that. There is sort of facts about reality, right? Things that happen. And then there's the way we relate to the things that happen. And you can actually shift this without necessarily changing this at all, right? You can shift your relationship to time, your relationship to money, your relationship to yourself, the past, the future, and actually nothing in your life has to change at all. And you can change your relationship to it. And I think that's the thing about coaching people don't understand is they think it's just about changing the stuff in your life rather than changing how you relate to the stuff in your life. Such a good point. Yeah. And it's so interesting because people go through these, they go through like life changes and, and context changes all the time, but it's, it's not done intentionally. So it just sort of happens, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like one context shift would be from going from, from college to, to pro- the professional world, right? All of a sudden, mm-hmm. so many, like the ways you relate might change and some, some might not change. So I want to bridge the gap of the two pieces of our conversation. How did you go from living in a Zen monastery for two years into the coaching world? Tell me that story. I've never heard. Yeah. So, well, I had a, had a career in the music business. So I worked in the music business for about eight years. Left that career, said I didn't want to do music anymore, anymore, wasn't sure. Met a guy who, I was at this party and I was hanging out, you know, maybe hoping to meet a girl, probably hoping to meet a girl. <laughs> That's what I did at parties back then. I mean, probably I've done that parties, I haven't been to a party in a while, but I'm sure that if I went to a party now, there's part of me looking for girls, even though I have a girlfriend. That gets sort of like a guy thing to do at a party is look for girls. And um, so I was at a party and this guy walked in and I was just struck by him immediately. He just seemed like weirdly peaceful, like weirdly just like calm and centered. And, um, you know, I now know as a coach, it's because of who he was being, not what he was doing, but he was just being really calm and peaceful and a clearing for, for spaciousness and presence. And I, I just was like, man, I gotta, who is this guy? Like, I gotta talk to this guy. What is his deal? So I remember going over and talking to him and, I was asking him, you know, what are you doing? Tell me about your life. And he was telling me he'd been hiking in Ireland, talked about those amazing hikes he'd done. And then he was talking about um, they lived at this monastery. And I just remember thinking, like, who lives at a monastery? What does that even mean? And what does that look like? And I had just been to India. So I was like, oh, is this like an Indian monastery? And he said, no, it's here in the in the States. And then he invited me to go to meditation. And so I started going to meditation on a regular basis and ended up getting into the monastery largely because I felt like I was unclear about what I wanted to do with my life. And I thought that the monastery would be a place for me to be kind of a cool adventure and big adventure guy, a place to kind of discover that. And so then when I got to my, you know, then the monastery happened, which is a whole other story. When I got to the end of that experience, I started to ask myself, do I really want to be a Zen monk? Because there were other Zen monks there, uh, ordained priests. And I saw what they did and I felt like, you know, I really love meditation. I love what they do. Is that something I want to do or not? And I formed what's called a Quaker Clearness Committee. So I went around to people in my communities and said, will you come and talk through this problem with me? And so they talked through the problem. They asked you questions. And the, the result of that process was I got very clear that what I was supposed to do was be a teacher. And I thought at the time it was to be a preschool teacher. And so I left the monastery with this, okay, I'm going to be a preschool teacher. I got a job uh, as an after school arts and crafts preschool teacher. 
And I enjoyed the first two days playing guitar with the kids. And then I just was miserable. Every day I went in, I was like, I don't want to design dinosaurs. I don't want to develop an aquarium project for these kids. I, I like, like hanging out with them, but I want to like plan anything. Yeah. And so I started doing triathlons as a thing, like on the side. And I was way more excited about the triathlons. I was showing up to work late because I was swimming super long in the morning. And so eventually I realized I'm not supposed to be a preschool teacher. And I went back to this question of what am I supposed to do with my life? And so um, a friend of mine had, was training for a half marathon. And she said, well, why don't you be a per my personal trainer? And so I said, I'll give that a shot. And so I started working with her. And we would go on these long walks. And I remember we'd, it was in Portland. So we'd go on these walks. And she was kind of a you know 40-year-old woman. She described herself as fluffy, kind of fluffy 40-year-old woman. We'd go on these walks. And I'd walk with her and talk with her about this half marathon she was going to walk. And, and we we had these amazing conversations about her desire to be an artist and what she wanted to do with her life. And I started applying a lot of the things I learned at the monastery in our conversations. And I remember very specifically the moment where I was sitting by the finish line where she was walking across the finish line, smiling and her family was there cheering her on. And as I looked at her, I just had this realization, like this woman that's about to cross the finish line has changed in so many ways over the course of the two months we worked together. And I was like, I want to do that. I want to be able to have that kind of impact on people in a really meaningful way. And so I went from that. I did personal training for about a year with mindfulness coaching on the side and, and then quickly realized that it wasn't so much about the half marathon stuff. It was about those conversations. And so pretty quickly from there, I switched from being a personal trainer into a coach and then started working with business owners, which is mostly because I just like working with those people. And But it all really comes from this place of, my desire to be of deep and fundamental service of people who are walking that path of awakening and just seeing what it's like to be in this conversation with people about what does your life mean? You know, this life was such a precious gift. What does your life mean? And what does it mean to use and live your life well? And so that's what had me be a coach and continues to have me kind of come back and, and do the work of a coach again and again. I love it. I can attest to, there's something that's, it's a lot of things. It's humbling. It's profound. It is. It's like the breakthrough of client also registers as breakthrough for coach. There's this, mm -hmm. this symbiotic relationship that we, we dive into in this coaching relationship. Hmm. And there's just something. It's ecstatic when your client creates the breakthroughs they've been working through. I, I have these like really just revelatory moments. Correspondingly, I also have these moments of just heartbreak and agony and just sitting through like the sheer, like beating your head against the wall when clients are stuck. That's, mm. That is a huge piece of being a coach as well. I notice when new coaches come on they're they're like, it's such a cool life. And they, they think about all these, they just see the glamour of it. And there is a lot of glamour in the lifestyle and being in the job, but then they get into like bumping up against their own first hurdle, which is their own stuff. They're bumping up against that first wall of like, ah, why is this happening? And you're beating your head against the wall. And it's like, I thought this was supposed to be glamorous. What is going on? I wonder if you can talk to that because I know you also do some, some trainings as well in your dojo and, and speak to that for a minute. Yeah. I mean, I think what I really want coaches to do is to treat coaching with a great deal of reverence. I think it is really deep, meaningful, spiritual work and, and work that I think people are called to. I used to be a bit precious about coaching in that way where I was like, well, there's all these bad coaches out there doing all this damage. 
I started to see more recently that, you know, at least they're trying, at least they're engaged in a profession where they're trying to help, right? So I think there's these two draws that people feel into coaching. One is a desire to be of more direct service to others. Because I think that, you know, working in a big organization, big company, you can be indirect service to others, but they feel kind of trapped like, well, I can't really change anything. I mean, there's obviously amazing opportunities for leadership wherever you are. But I think when you're looking from that context of I'm trapped inside a company or trapped inside a job, it feels like there's no way to have an impact where you're at. And so that's one desire is like, I want to have a more direct impact on people. And then there's also this sort of weird desire for freedom, which of course, whatever you had in your corporate job or previous career, you're just going to recreate as a coach pretty predictably. You don't have time there. You're not going to have a time as a coach. If you were annoyed by people there, you're going to be annoyed by people as a coach. So that kind of gets transferred over. But I used to focus a lot more on the, well, people just want the lifestyle. And I've started to focus more and more on, well, people really want to help other people. Like that's the sort of fundamental desire. They want a more direct route to do that. And so I think the challenge is, is that to be able to help people while also running a business is really difficult. Helping people is hard enough because people... And they, they fight you to get help. Yeah. And then to run a business is also super hard. And I also think there's an entrepreneurism has been glamorized by Tim Ferriss and all these other people about like, oh, to be successful is to be an entrepreneur. And I honestly think most people would be happier working for somebody else. Because yeah. being an entrepreneur is just, it's just stressful. It's just honestly very, very stressful. And you have to do a lot of, you don't have, you don't have a lot of economies of scale. You got to do your own accounting, bookkeeping, got to manage your own scheduling and internal systems. and it's hard. It's hard work, you know? And so most people don't really want that. Most people really want to help people. So I think that there's a lot of glamour in the coaching industry and people get enamored with that freedom and the possibility. And I think there's not enough coaches revealing their own humanity and the difficulty of it being a coach. Like I run a, a, a mastermind program for coaches. And one of the conversations we have is about money. And I show them my profit and loss statement for the year that I made $300,000, but lost $5,000, right? So I brought in $300,000 in revenue, but lost $5,000 on the books. Let's possibly be making a quarter of a million dollars and losing money, right? So I actually made less this year, but I brought home a lot more. And so I think part of it is there's not a lot of coaches out there revealing the human challenge is what it means to be a coach. It's a reverent path, but it's also a human path. I just had a person who I was in conversation with reveal to me like, because I was revealing some of my humanity in a public way, it was like that was illustrating my lack of capacity as a coach. And I was like, thank you for your feedback. <laughs> but that is a trap that we can, it's the Instagram, it's the Facebook trap of only revealing the beauty and shiny piece, which, which is just, it's not just coaches fall into it, we all do. And to actually, it's, it's remarkable how much pain a human being, and I am guilty of this, remarkable how much pain a human has to come to before they'll actually say like, okay, it hurts. Mm. I need some help. Can mm. someone please help me with this pain I'm dealing with? Mm. The amount that we will tolerate is remarkable. Mm. And I think there's a lot to say about that. And uh, one of the gifts that I've gotten over all of the training that I've done over the last five, six years is just to start to really address, hey, is this issue that's mildly annoying? Let's, let's work on this now before it comes this acute battle of hellfire, you know? Mm. So, yeah, that's a cool transition you make. You're going from like intense Zen practice, which was intense. It's like, wake up at four 
work intensely, sit intensely till how, what time did you go to bed? Yeah, we went before two hours of meditation, working in the middle of the day, a little bit of breaks. And then I, don't know, I think we went to bed at like eight or nine. I mean, we were allowed to go to bed at eight or nine o'clock, but usually you stay up for another hour because it's the only free time you have is in the night. So usually people do stuff, they'll read or they'll go do, they'll do laundry. Like, so you don't have a lot of free time. So you end up like, you know, I, mean, I would say on average, like between six and seven hours sleep a night at the monastery. I rarely got eight hours of sleep, maybe on the weekends. What's easier, life inside the monastery or out? Uh, I mean, it depends on the context of easier. I, I, I left that question intentionally vague. I was yeah, I it's easier to practice inside the monastery. So if my if my primary focus or the thing that I'm empowering is practice, life is easier inside the monastery. You don't have to think about getting up and meditating. You don't have to think about am I living a spiritual life. You don't have to think about growth. You don't have to think about discipline. Um, the monastery just holds it. I mean, like, you know, if you don't get up out of bed, they come get you up, right? So if you're going to be at the monastery, you follow the schedule. So there's more freedom outside. Like I'm holding my own container more outside the monastery. And in some ways it's easier to not wake up at 4 a.m. But in some ways it's a lot harder to have to hold all your own structure. So I was having to hold all my own structure. It, there, there's this idea of like the, the householder yogi and the monastery yogi, right? Like it's another way of saying it's what we're talking about here. And I was speaking to a friend about this and it was in the context of my own spiritual practice and spiritual life. And I'm like, I envy people who are in a monastery. It feels easier because they don't, because it, it, I'm so glad you said it. it. It mirrors precisely what you're saying. It's given to you. You're like, no, this is the structure for your spiritual life. When I'm outside, I'm like, all right, well, I got to, I was going to say balance a checkbook, but <laughs> who's done that since I was a teenager? So you have to like, you know, do all your accounting. You have to run your business. You have to like, there's so many ancillary types of things that if you really feel devoted, which I do to my spiritual practice, it's tough. It is tough to have all these distractions. Um, well, and I think this is the illusion that people go from a corporate world into coaching. It's like, oh, there's all this structure. The structure is keeping me trapped. I'm going to go on my own. I'll be free from this structure. No, no, no. To actually be successful, you have to create a bunch of so You have to build your own structure. And by the way, you're probably going to end up feeling trapped by that too because that's your relationship to structure is that it's imprisoning. So it'll be poorly designed and you'll feel trapped. Like at least before it was well-designed and you felt trapped. Now it's poorly designed and you feel trapped. And so that's a very interesting experience of being a coach or entrepreneur is like, wow, I'm trapped by my own structure and it doesn't work very well, right? So, I, I mean, I think that's really true. I, and I, I will say there is another perspective in which life in monastery is a lot harder, but I think because it really does evoke a particular kind of rigor that very few people that I know in householder life or regular life really can create. And so it's tough to be in that kind of rigorous environment. You know, that there's that level of rigor that we do inside the dojo. I think you've done AC, there's rigorous environment, you know, so anytime you put yourself in a rigorous container, it's going to be difficult. So in that way, life in the monastery is much more difficult because I don't think I've ever held myself to quite the same level of rigor as I held myself to there. Because I'm not sure I could, or I would want to, right? I mean, I guess I could empower that kind of structure, but yeah, that's not, that's not really the game I'm up to. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the insidious part of someone that's like trying to leave corporate structure. So then they take on a different lifestyle and entrepreneurship. Once now they have to real, they realize that they have to take on and create their own structure and then it falls apart and it doesn't work. Now you're left with, Oh shit, I created the structure. That was me. And now it's not, I can't blame my boss. I've seen a lot of entrepreneurs 
or coaches that blame their customers or blame their clients and and that's, the, that's or blame their mentors, the coaching industry, or the ICF. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's like blame self or blame other instead of which is a context in and of itself. Blaming instead of just being like, okay, being present to what is right, yeah. and removing a lot of that emotional charge that we have to the things that we create. Yeah, I mean the two so, distinctions that I love in that realm are so one is the distinction. This is a landmark distinction: the distinction between performance and morality. So. Right. Performance, I got up and did my 100 push-ups today or didn't do my 100 push-ups today. That's just, that just is or isn't. That's your performance. You did 100 or you didn't do 100. It's not personal. It's impersonal. Just 100 or not. And then morality, I'm a good or bad person because I did or didn't do 100 push-ups. And most people have these two just totally collapse. Oh, right. And there's actually a ton of value in having them separate. So that's one I really love because I think a lot of coaches have that collapsed. And the other is um, a distinction from Tracy Goss's Last Word on Power, which is an incredible book. Whereas uh, the human paradigm is there are problems, there are things that there are should be that shouldn't be and shouldn't be that are, and they need to be fixed versus there's only what happened, what's missing and what's next. And I think that that's just such a valuable distinction for coaches because they're like, well, my structure fell apart. So that means I suck, right? Which is performance and morality or my structure fell apart. The problem is that these coaches who ran my program lied to me about what I needed to do and they're awful, right? Which is finding a problem they need to fix. Well, I'll find a new mentor, a new system, that'll fix it. Versus, okay, what happened was I planned a bunch of structure. It wasn't actually, like, it didn't actually work. I didn't empower it. I wasn't actually inspiring for me. I didn't have a good what for. So what's missing? What's missing is my what for. What's missing is me empowering it. What's next is change my structure, give it a good what for, really empower it this time, right? Instead of blaming yourself or castigating yourself, this way of relating to structure in a way that's much more, that's much more powerful. And I mean, and that's the thing that nobody talks about as an entrepreneur is that you're constantly empowering and then letting structure fall apart and then having to re-empower it. And, you know, it's not like you just like get it down. I mean, I know some people have a perfect morning routine and they get it down, but most people it's like 80, they're living 80% of the structure they say they're living at best, right? That's a very, very high level. And, uh, and then, you know, they're flexible inside that structure. And so the, the reality of having to recreate constantly your structure and have that be a creative process, I think is really actually healthy and good, but a lot of people don't understand that. I think it's sort of like, I build it once and then I let it go and I have to do anything else with it. I've had that struggle and it occurs to me, you know, as an Enneagram seven, it's so tough because I'm constantly mm -hmm. around people that are talking about things like ways to really empower certain structures, right? And so my Enneagram seven mind is like, that is a new sparkling structure that I could add to what is currently available. And I just noticed the, the desire to want to grab on the new thing and add it in. And then I'll, I'll get a little sickle with my structure and all of a sudden I'll clamp down and I'll do the opposite. I'm like, no, I will never change. It's going to be the same because I got to do contrary action to what I'm normally doing. And we all have our unique typologies of how we empower things and how we don't, which goes back to kind of some of the points we've been making around like the context with which we live, you know, I kind of see these two camps inside coaching and all things where they're sort of like people, they're structure people. It's all about, you got to get a morning routine you got to have a checklist and you know, it's getting things done. And what is the Pomodoro? I got to do Pomodoros. You got to have your bullet journal and okay, it's all about structure. And then there's the people who are the anti-structure books, all about flow and following intuition and consciousness and, you know, if the, if the structure feels heavy that I got to let it go because it's a prison. And so there's these kind of two camps. 
And what I find interesting is that I, I encounter a lot of people that I feel are untrustable in their relationship to either side. So like the structure people, I'm like, wow, you don't actually seem like you have a very empowered relationship to the structure. You're pretty, really disempowered. In, like it, it feels great and you're really into it. You have a kind of disempowered relationship to it. And the flow people, it too, it's like the flow, the necessity for flow is happening to them. And what's interesting is that I have found people in both camps, both that have really incredible structure, as well as people who have incredible flow, but have a trustable relationship to whatever it is they're empowering, a trustful relationship to their structure or a trustable relationship to their flow, where they feel good in their relationship to it. And to the point at which now I'm no longer like, I think the distinction between flow and structure is sort of not as interesting to me. What's interesting is how trustable are you or how are you relating to the thing that you're empowering? I'm working with Teo Alfaro, who is a student of Carlos Castaneda. And he was saying that Carlos Castaneda at the end of his life would just like sleep. He would fall asleep in the middle of the day and then get up and do something else. He was totally, completely in flow. But his way of relating to it was so spiritual and so empowered that it was amazing. And I know people on the complete other side that have very structured days, like really very, very regimented, but the way they relate to it or be with it is really empowered. And so I think this sort of pull between like, oh, it's got to be really structured, it got to be really flow. It's more about, no, how are you actually relating to the thing that you're doing? The context that, that I want to look at rather than this other piece of it. You know, another way to say what you're saying is the masculine feminine, the masculine sure. structure and the feminine flow, right? Which is where we met when John Wyland's work. I, I totally relate to that. And, and I'm in a process right now in my life where I'm really working on the structure side. Because I really can empower the flow. I'm good at that. It's the structure side that I, I rebel against a lot of my own structures. So, yeah. I like the way you relate to it. Like, how trustable are you in the thing that you're empowering? Right? How, how do you feel in that? Yeah. Yeah. One of the things I noticed, because I, I have a lot of conversations with people that are not in the coaching world. They're not doing a lot of internal work. I shouldn't say they're not doing, everybody's doing internal work. I shouldn't, they're not going to workshops every week. They're not in the coaching world. They're not doing a lot of this stuff. And I notice as I give some people some feedback, it is really, can be very, very shocking just to bring it up just even a little bit. Again, you know, you don't really feel very trustable here. And I'll do that with a lot of people I had somebody that was uh, reached out to me on Facebook about Bitcoin investment. He was like, I want you to invest in my Bitcoin. I'm like, you don't feel very trustable. Why should I trust you in investing? And he's like, you're joking. And we went on this like back and forth for a few days. And he just could not, he thought that I was like messing with him. And I, I finally sent him like, these voice messages. And I'm like, no, man, you don't feel trustable. I'm trying to give you feedback to help you in your approach methods. Right. I've done that too with uh, car salesmen. You'll be on the, you'll be in the car with them. And she said, I was, I remember this one time she said, uh, what's it going to take for uh, me to get you in this car today? Whatever that classic line was. And I started laughing and I had the exact same conversation. I'm like, it's going to take you falling in love with me and stopping caring about the sale and actually feeling my heart and listening to what I want. That was fun. Anyway. Yeah. How did that go? Uh, she got really, she, I mean, she recovered enough as if she could, but she was like, this is a conversation I've never had in this context before ever. And it's just, it's, it's, it's such a gift that I've received that 
going through all the coaching training, having these kind of conversations on a daily basis really ups the level of relating to people in the world. Because for those two examples, I can give 30 examples of having regular conversations with other people where I will up it a little bit. And people are just, it feels like it lands like a gift to them mm. where just to like deepen the level of conversation or, or give some sort of reflection. It's like, Holy cow. Like, wow, thank you for this. And mm. it may just be the person at the grocery store checkout line where you just take the, the moment a little deeper because we get in these autonomic kind of rote ways of relating in public. So, yeah. 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 I mean, it's interesting. I had a, somebody message me this morning on Facebook Messenger about their coaching program, which I'm sure you've gotten. He's like, hey, I thought I was just curious if you'd be interested in our coaching program. Something I didn't know. And, uh, you know, it's like this could tell they're just messaging a bunch of people. And they're like, it's for new coaches. And I just sent a message back and I was like, hey, thanks. I'm not interested. And I was like, and if you checked on my profile, you would know that I've been coaching for a while and actually have run a successful business. And so just so you know, like your message landed a little bit like spam for me. And, you know, I just wanted to let you know that. So I sort of gave that feedback. And then, you know, he kind of gave me the typical defensive response about that. Like, well, you know, I'm, I'm just trying to share it. And oh, it was, uh, well, you know, sometimes when I see somebody's name, I like following my intuition, which I'm just like, you didn't follow your intuition. You followed the friends list on your group and you were just randomly messaging people. That's not your intuition, my man. That is not what intuition is called, Right. And I was like, and if you'd been following your intuition, you would have looked at my profile and been like, this guy seems like he can't probably knows what he's doing. Maybe if I were to invite him to my group, I should say it's for coaches who want to deepen their practice or some other type of message other than for new coaches, because I'm not a new coach, right? So the messaging wasn't, wasn't right. And I was like, cool, I got it. Sometimes I trust my intuition and, and you're wrong. And he's like, and I was like, I just want to let you know that it landed like spam because I would want somebody to let me know if my message landed like spam. And his response is really interesting. He goes, well, I think that any message could land like spam. I was like, yeah, that's true, but that's not really what I'm pointing to. <laughs> and it's interesting because I feel like one of the annoying things about working with coaches or talking to other coaches is that their self-defense mechanisms are so advanced. They have a way of not really hearing the feedback that's right in their blind spot, right? And so in a way, I prefer coaching business owners because like you've got to point to the thing and they're like, oh yeah, I'm kind of being a jerk. And you point to a coach and they'll be like, well that's because of this or this reason over here. And I'm working on this. And they have a lot of reasons or excuses, reasons and considerations about why that feedback isn't accurate to them. And uh, I think it's just so, it's so interesting that the way we relate to feedback and the way we relate to receiving feedback, especially as coaches is super important. And yet we're so good at defending from the feedback we really most need to hear. It's true. I've very much noticed that in my life and, and to notice like, for me, a big one has been in sobriety, like just to like notice that there's like this new lens of like mm. numbing out coming through feeling and thought, like if feedback lands where it hurts and I don't want to feel the feelings of hearing that feedback, I will numb out through mm. cognition. I will numb out through my, my brain making up like these sophisticated ways of why not just relating to what mm. you're saying very much. Mm. And so just to be on guard in that realm is a big deal. Mm. He said the statement, I was just trying to, duh, duh, duh. <laughs> I hear that all the time. It's becoming a new like light alarm flashing bell. If I ever hear the words, I was just trying to come out of my mouth, I immediately have to stop talking because <laughs> 
I've, I've been one of a, a really powerful way to move about the world is to never hide behind intention. I was just trying. I meant to. I meant it this way. I was just, I didn't mean to do that. Because we all have good intentions. I'm dealing with um, a big dust up in my family that I caused right now. And my intention was not to, I, I made it what I thought was a harmless Jesus joke. It was not a harmless Jesus joke to my Jesus. There's no, there's no such thing as a harmless Jesus joke, Jared. Come on. <laughs> I did not. Why did you have to make baby Jesus cry, Jared? He's just oh. a sweet little baby in a manger. They couldn't even find a room for him at the inn. <laughs> He's just a sweet little baby in a manger. And all the shepherds came with their animals and the wise men, and you made him cry. I did. Yeah. But it, it landed really poorly and it really offended my family whom I deeply love and I didn't mean to do it that way. And so, so like, great, I have to like feel the impact and not get away with like, you guys are being too sensitive. Da, 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 da. But yeah. to not just be like, not only are you guys like not tied behind, I, I've been watching my mind over like the whatever 48, 24 hours after that happened. And I've been watching my mind make up reason after reason after justification after justification of why a hundred things are wrong that they did. You guys are this like religious hegemony in the state and I have to deal with like all this crap and you can't even deal with the joke that was intended just to watch how much charge there is in my own mind to defend a feeling that sucks. And the feeling is shit, I don't like hurting my, the feelings of my family members. Yeah. That really hurts. I feel sad about that. You know, I feel like our society has been going through this big upheaval around this distinction of intention and impact. Because I think the first place we've seen it has been in the, the Me Too movement. There was a lot about, because a lot of the ways that men were defending, well, I didn't intend. I didn't intend for her to feel sexually harassed when I was clearly sexually harassing her. I didn't intend for her to experience that as sexual assault by doing something without consent. And so there started to be this realization of, oh, right, it doesn't matter what I'm intending when I'm, I'm engaging with someone in a sexual manager, manner. What matters is the impact. What is the impact of that, right? And, and if I'm not doing what I need to do carefully with consent, with conversation, I'm not managing the impact, then I'm violating someone's boundaries. So that was sort of the first conversation. And then the, the second conversation, which has been about race, it's the same thing. Why well, didn't intend to be racist, right? When I made a joke, of, when I asked you if I could touch your hair, I didn't intend to be racist when I made the, that joke about immigrants. But then people started to realize, oh, it doesn't matter what I intend. I actually could be unconsciously expressing what is a racist idea through my speech. And so it's interesting because I feel like our society has been slowly starting to go through this conversation of intention doesn't matter. I mean, it's not that it doesn't matter at all. It matters a little bit. Right. What really matters is impact. And so as a coach, it's been interesting to be, you know, before Me Too, I was having conversations about intention and impact. Yeah. And so when the Me Too thing happened, I was like, oh, yeah, it makes sense to me. But to see kind of society starting to catch up with this idea of what you intend doesn't matter. You know, this guy who messaged me didn't intend to be perceived as spam, sure. but that's how it landed, right? And so then I'm saying, hey, this is the impact. And again, he sort of puts it back on me like, well... You could perceive anything as spam. You could perceive anything as racist. You could perceive yeah. anything as sexual harassment. Yeah, I get that. And 
your intention that for it not to be that does not change the impact it has on other people. The thing that I notice about like just using sexual energy, we don't have most of us, unless we're hardcore, complete and total dickwad, asshole, rapist, like we're not that person. We're not intending to hurt another person, but it will often land that way. And if we can be present enough and be solid enough to hear the feedback and really actually just say like, oh, drop below the defense mechanisms and feel the interaction. Whenever I get feedback, I will feel the energy movement between. Like there's this interesting thing that I, I've, a new capacity that's come on in the last few years where I don't remember. I remember on levels. So I'll remember the details. I'll remember the pictures. I'll remember the story. But I've been really enjoying remembering the energy flow mm-hmm. between like going back and remembering like, oh, it felt this way. And then, oh, there was this <gasps> like just feeling the energy of like when I said this, I can. What's interesting is that I've noticed there's a stored memory inside of my psyche that I can live in a moment. I can live a situation where I offend a woman or whatever it might be. And then she'll give me the impact a week later. And she'll usually say like this landed this way and I'll feel the story. But a lot of times what my practice is, is to feel the energy of it, to feel the deeper kinds of like dynamics of what happened between us. Right. So I can feel like, Oh, as I sit with it now, I can see like I was defending my own insecurity or whatever it might be. And mm-hmm. I found that that's, that is really fascinating to me. It's been really powerful, but I'm getting away from the point that I was actually excited to talk about, which is whenever we feel the impact that someone's reflecting to us, all of a sudden we can change those subtle dynamics, subtle energy kinds of flows. And what I've noticed, especially in sexual exchange, is that sexual relating and intimate relating starts to get deeper and richer and more like erotic and more uh, exhilarating. It has its corresponding like payments of like, there's some moments that it really sucks, but we can go deeper into that space. And it's like the cost is we have to get present to our impact in the moment. But the more we defend against that impact, it's it is stopping our capacity to actually like expand or go deeper into whatever the practice is that we're wanting to go into. And that happens with sexual relating, that happens with business, that happens with anything we're doing, but really being open to the impact that we're having on the world. And I think if there was one, if there was one central gift that coaches give, it is the gift of lovingly delivering impact how people are impacting the world in a way that someone can metabolize that. Right. That was a lot. What you got? No, I like that. I like that. The number, one of the biggest things coaches give is revealing or offering the impact of who people are being. In the world. I think that's true. You know, a lot of coaches really talk about coaching being a mirror and that's what it is. Like, Hey, I noticed that when you talk like this, I can't understand you because the truth is that person and the way they talk, a lot of people can't understand them, but no one is going to tell them or certainly not tell them skillfully. Like, wow, you talk a lot. You should shut up. Right? It's not the most skillful way to tell someone, right. which I use. I use that kind of language in my coaching sessions a lot. I don't coach it. <laughs> so, but a way to lovingly share with them, hey, I noticed that this impact is here for you. 
And what would you like to do about it? And I, I think the hard thing for a lot of coaches is that they think that it's, you see the impact, you see the pattern in the other person, you reflect it to them, and then you go and fix the pattern. And I would say the, the deepest work, the most impactful work is not the work of, you know, hey, I noticed that you um, scrape the thing off your cutting board with the sharp side of the knife. That's dulling the knife. Did you know that? You should flip the knife over and scrape it off the other way. But that, that would be easy if that was the thing we were coaching on. It's very often like, hey, I noticed that you step back into this context of not enough time. Or hey, I noticed that you always reserve the right to get upset. That was my, my coach would be like, you always reserve the right to get upset. And I was like, well, I'm upset about that. So but it's that work of really just pointing to, hey, you're, you're in the context again. You're in the context again. You're showing up this energy again. You're showing up the behavior again. I notice it. I love you. You're still doing it. Hey, by the way, did you notice? Hey, I'm just noticing that. Hey, there it is again. That work is actually the work that has the biggest impact. But as a coach, it can feel very unsatisfying, right? Because it's those really deeply ingrained patterns that take a take time to shift, but they can't be fixed. They really have to be brought into awareness, observed. The impact has to be really present, and then the person will start to change that habit pattern. But it's tough, right? And and so I think that's one of the dangers or challenges coaches have is that they want to do the I spot it, I fix it kind of thing with their clients. And in reality, really great coaches are doing a lot of just pointing. Hey, I noticed that. I noticed that. I noticed that. I noticed that. That's it. Yeah. That's the MCC level coach, right? Yeah. Well, and it's interesting because it reminds me a lot of the most impactful things that I discovered in meditation. Hmm. So the most impactful things I discovered in meditation were not the, oh, wow, I noticed that I see a pretty girl and I think about her for a day or two that's fine. You know, I can notice that patterning in me or uh, deepening my breath, which has a certain impact, but it was the stuff where I just kept, it would pop up again and again. I just notice it and notice it, sit with it and notice it, sit with it and notice it. Working with that stuff, the stuff that did not easily absolve through meditation was the thing that had the longest term impact. And so meditation is a form of a mirror and so is coaching. And so I I think that that that's where the real juice is. It's just hard because it's not, it's not very satisfying. And it's hard to sell someone on like, Hey, you're going to come in. We're going to sit down. I'm going to point to stuff and then I'm going to point to it for a year. And then it's going to be like 10% left, but your life is going to be like 80% better. And then you have to think about that for the rest of your life. And it's never going to go away actually, but you're just going to see it more often. It's hard to sell people on that as a product, which right. is essentially what coaching is. So Toku, buddy, yeah. this is a live stream. Come on. Like they're going to get the joke before. <laughs> it is true that stuff that we coach around is never going away, but the impacts, like the amount that we do it and the hold that it has on us significantly decreases, which just frees up so much energy to live in this new kind of more robust, beautiful way. And it's a powerful way to move about the move about your life. So yeah. Coaching is so cool. I love it. I love I'm so I love it so much. It's crazy. Yeah. I could talk about this all day. I could have this conversation with you. I could be like, all right, we need to take a five minute bio break. And I could keep talking to you for like 10 hours about this. I just recently had a therapist fire me. He was like, You're a professional client. He's like, You're obsessed with this stuff. I'm like, Yeah. I was like, aren't we all? And he anyway, that was a sidetrack, but it was just funny because he was like, so he fired you because you were a professional client? He was like, you're too into self-development. He's huh. like, you just need to go live your life. I'm like, all right, sounds good. 
thanks for that. I mean, it was a brand new, like we were meeting each other for the first time. It wasn't like we had developed a big relationship, but I was just like, okay, you're not my therapist. That's cool. Like, see you later. <laughs> but I thought it was funny. Do you think there's something for you in that feedback though? Cause I, I, I see that a bit in myself too. That's why I'm curious. I do. Yeah, no, I do. I, I, I wasn't like, you're totally off. Cause I do have a slight, it was funny cause it came up in my men's group. I have two men's groups, which is illustrating the point. And then I lead a men's group, but our men's group last night, they're like, every one of us, we practice too hard and too much. And they're like, can we just relax and just hang out? And we're like, yeah. And we ended up changing our men's group to a women's group. So now it's, it's just a women's group where we get in flow and we just have fun and we follow the play. And so now I don't have two men's groups. I have one men's group and one women's group. It's great. So, uh, yeah, there is something in there for me to look at. And the first thing I notice is that I want to blame things like COVID, like COVID won't let me get out and hike more or whatever it is. And then I just realized like, yeah, actually there is something that is lacking in my life, which is just muggle shit. <laughs> Not this magic world of self-development, like ecstasy kind of all the time. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. I mean, there was a time where I had three different coaches and was in two programs and I do think there starts to be a, a phase of which there is really diminishing return yeah, in personal development. And, and I do think that there's, um, for me at least, there's a desire, there's an addiction to excitement, which a lot of 12-step programs talk about, there's an addiction to excitement, and a lot of, a lot of people just talk about it in general. And so there's a way in which I can get that addiction to excitement met through personal development. And there's a period of time where I did drugs. That was how I met my addiction to excitement or, or adventures, you know, I'd go skydiving or something like that, or go, go on roller coasters and date really dramatic women and get in big fights. And there was a whole phase where that was the way I did it. And then a lot of that got transferred over to personal development. Like, okay, here's the next new thing. It's going to completely change me. And I'm going to start using all the language, talk about distinctions all the time and enroll people into coming to my Tuesday night landmark forum thing, and, you know, a way of like relating to that. And, but I, one of the things I've really been working on a lot is like, so, can I be boring, right? And can my life be boring? Because I mean, you know, healthy adult life is pretty boring. You yeah. know, there's actually not that much excitement going on. And it's, I, I struggle with that because so much of the coaching industry is about living the best life and everything being tens. And I'm like, well, what if everything being a 10 is just fine? Like, you know, like I don't, I have this struggle a lot where I'm like, well, I should want to write a best-selling book. I'm like, but I don't really care about writing. Like, I don't really care. My ego cares about me writing a best-selling book, but I don't actually care about it. Yeah. I, and maybe I come up with a good what for for doing it, but I'm sort of like, well, I don't know. I mean, like, maybe it's just fine that I wrote a book and maybe 10 people will read. What's the big deal? Why, why do I need there to be 1,000 people who read or 10,000 people who read? And so I, I think there is this place in which personal development can also fulfill that need or that addiction for excitement. And it's sort of like, can I be comfortable with things being boring? And can I find a different source for my desire to grow to come from? So not a source of like, I'm trying to grow so that I escape my life, or I'm trying to grow so that I have some big exciting epiphany, but I'm growing in service of something that's bigger than me and something that's coming through me. And that's, that's sort of the edge of my practice right now, right? It's how do I, because I mean, my life has gotten pretty, I mean, it's funny. I'm like, you know, I'm not that ambitious. I wrote like two and a half books last year and signed a bunch of clients and or like my life's not that interesting as I like travel around the country as a nomad. But my, my way of experiencing life is like, well, actually it's not compared to how things were before, not that exciting. Cause my business isn't falling apart every three months, I'm fighting with my partner, 
like it's sort of boring and and so i'm learning how to like be with life as boring and not trying to create a bunch of personal development drama as a way to keep things interesting yeah i'm looking at how that lands with me and i, I mean what you say is very profound but i'm still in the I, I notice my body constricts when you're like i'm trying to live more boring and i'm like i'm not ready for that i need excitement <laughs> Yep. Well, plight of an Enneagram seven. That's what happens when your power animal is Tigger. And so what are you going to do? Well, but I'm an Enneagram four. And so I like the excitement just for a different reason. I, I like the angsty drama of being a four. You're like, I just need death and destruction and despair. Yes. So it's got to be so dramatic. My internal experience has to be so rich and painful and I have to feel all the things. And I'm going to find the depths of the basement. And then when I find the depths, I notice there's a doorway and then there's a new basement even below that. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And you level to my angst. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. We've been rocking for about an hour now. You got anywhere else you want to hit before we kind of start yeah, wrapping I, down? I, 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 we should wrap here. I think it's good. Okay. Toku, this was fun, my friend. I had a really good time chatting with you. Yeah, absolutely. Let's do it again. Let's do it again. Thanks so much for inviting me on. I hope that whoever watched this got some value out of it. I was just going to have you plug whatever you wanted to plug. Uh, so I wrote a book. This is my book. This is my, the first physical copy of my book. Oh, cool. The Samurai Coaching Devotional. So it's like a 31-day devotional for coaches. They're just little like vignettes. They're really short. These really short, beautiful vignettes that I wrote about coaching. Like, you know, talking about not fixing your clients and how to create awe in your coaching sessions, identifying, you know, what's in the way as a coach, kind of what, what a coach needs, what's like, what is the essential mind of a coach or a harder coach? And each one is just like a page, page and a half. So these little vignettes for coaches to kind of like, just get more inspired. So that's the thing I'll plug is, is this new book. I, I'll give you the link to the, yeah, I'm not selling physical copies yet. Cause there's actually, it's interesting. This is like the cover is slightly misaligned to this side. So this is why this is why you order sample copies of books, people. So anyway, I got to get that fixed. Once I get that done, then I'll start off like physical copies. But the digital, there's a really beautiful PDF digital version that people can buy. Well, will you hold that up again? Because I noticed that's a really, that's actually a really beautiful, like aesthetically pleasing book. I noticed there's something inside of me that relaxes when I look at the book. Hmm. Uh, I'm excited. I want a copy of that, Toku. Okay. Well, I, can, nice. I can hand deliver you a copy. Yeah. Same All right, buddy. Thanks again. Thanks everybody for watching and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in this topic and would like to explore it more, you can contact me at jared at jaredandersoncoaching.com spelled J-A-R-E-D and Anderson with an O. You can also check me out at jaredandersoncoaching.com where you can book a free discovery session and see what coaching might do for you. I also welcome feedback, so don't hesitate to send me an email with your thoughts on the podcast. And finally, I would invite you to rate and review this podcast. Once again, thanks for listening. Thank you.